Good morning, friends. Good to see you and be with you, take communion together and be the church together. Um, let, do you mind if I pray? Can we pray? Is that all right? Let's pray. Jesus, it's in these moments sometimes that I'm reminded of how kind of foolish this is. Um, a person who lived 2,000 years ago and was executed by the Roman Empire. And we believe that he's alive. And we believe, like Paul said, this is foolishness. We believe that through that death on the cross and that resurrection that all things are being redeemed. But Jesus, I believe it, and I want, to, I want to hide myself in that reality more and more. I want to find myself in you, Jesus, more and more. I want to root myself in who you are more and more, and I want to become like you, Jesus, more and more. I'm grateful for times like this, when I'm reminded of what my path and my trajectory and my life needs to be oriented towards and around, and it's you, Jesus. So just come and do that. You've been doing that this morning. Continue to do that. Continue to do that as, you, as we walk out these doors. Mold and transform and shape us into your likeness, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're, you're here, which means there's a good chance you identify as a Christian. I say this regularly. If you don't identify as a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. I'm really actually extra glad you're here. But if you identify as a Christian, that means that you're familiar with the Scriptures in some way, shape, or form. You hopefully have studied the Scriptures a little bit. You've read the Scriptures. You've examined them. Probably some of you have really done some good work. You're in a home church here, you're going to attend the, the, the small group and learn more about how early Christians went about this stuff and how they came to believe certain things, or maybe you've done all that work and you're, you're familiar with the scriptures. Have you ever had that, that moment when you come to the scriptures, and maybe even what Jesus says, and you're like, that's kind of weird. You know what I'm talking about? You approach, you, you, you read the scriptures, and you, maybe it's even for that Bible study that you're leading, and you're like, this is, this is, I don't, we don't talk or think like this. Like, this is odd. Any, any ideas for why that might be? Why is the Bible sometimes odd? Cultural differences. Thank you, Emily. Cultural differences. We'll, we'll add these up at the, uh, when, we're, when we're done. Why, why, why might the Bible feel just kind of sometimes weird? Written a long time ago. You guys are on it. Very good, Lori. 2,000 years ago-ish, at the, like the most recent, right? 1,900 years ago, some of the, script, the New Testament. The Old Testament is way older than that. What else? 
I see a hand up back there, Claire. Say that again. The world doesn't always speak like Jesus. Jesus is different. Jesus is a different human being, a different person than us. He, very good. So when we're approaching the scriptures, sometimes we forget that it's a strange book in many ways. It was written, with, who else does anybody in the room read, regularly read a book that's 2,000 years old or more, two to 5,000 years old? Anybody read a book like that? I mean, Zach is a Bible scholar and a church historian. He doesn't count. No one else. <laughs> Janan, you guys don't count. When we read, the, when we approach the scriptures, we're approaching a book, a collection, a library of 66 books that were written several thousand years ago. That right there should be like, this is a, this is a major endeavor that we're partaking in when we open the scriptures. That when our pastor used to teach us that it's just this great inspired book, you just open it and you live your life by it. It's complex. It was written 2,000 years ago. That means also it was written on the other side of the world. But it, it, it com- in a people group that lived in a completely different culture than us, completely different. And that means that they have different phrases and, and ver- verbal things and communication was completely different and their metaphors were totally different than we could ever imagine. So doesn't it make sense? And it was written in a different language. Jesus first spoke in Aramaic. Then that was translated to Koine Greek, which we don't speak anymore. Then that was translated into all these thousands of languages until now we have the 2011 NIV, which is the right translation. (laughs) We got pretty King James about the NIV around here. I'm just kidding. It just makes sense to me. So this morning, we're gonna, we're gonna, we come to a text that we do what we normally do, which is we, we kind of take the good and, and kind of ignore the rest because it's kind of odd. But this morning, I wanna, I wanna, we're going to dive into this stuff and we're going to situate ourselves within the culture and understand why Jesus is saying some of the things that maybe, maybe we've gotten used to or maybe we're like, just I don't talk like that. Like, it's just different. So we're going we're gonna to situate ourselves culturally a little bit and contextually within this text. And then there's this timeless truth. And this is the way the scriptures often work. I'm just trying to help you approach the scriptures in what I think is a healthy way. It's, let's, let's use the work of good biblical scholars to understand what's going on here in the, in, the, in the context and why they're talking like this, why Jesus is saying these things. And then let's take out this timeless truth that we can sit here and wonder about 2,000 years later, and it's just as if Jesus said it right here today. See, that's the beauty of the scriptures. It's complex. It's nuanced. You got to really get under the hood to, to see what's going on, but there are these nuggets that you don't have to be a biblical scholar to be challenged by, to be confronted by, to be transformed, to let yourself be transformed by so let's, let's dive in. We're going to be in John 15. We've been in the book of John for a long time, and we're just working our way through it. We're in this farewell discourse of Jesus. You've heard me talk about it over and over again. I'm not going to do it this morning. Let's read the whole of John 15, or almost. What should have been the chapter division at verse 25? So we get the whole idea here. I'm the true vine, and the father is the gar- my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me, 
that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. If it does not remain in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. We, we have covered all this, so if you're interested, you haven't been here, just check it out online, it's there. I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you, Jesus is speaking metaphorically, trying to get them to understand this big truth in ways that they might easily understand. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, connected to me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a, a useless branch that is thrown away and withers such branches, branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, and remember, that's an active pursuit, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Last week, we just sat in that phrase, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Here we go. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Now, do you think the disciples' eyes rolled a little bit when Jesus said this? There he goes again. Jesus talking about love again. Like just two chapters ago, Jesus gave them another commandment. Like we have people in our world clamoring for the Ten Commandments to be hung in public schools sometimes. I think there should be 11 commandments because Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. This is John 13. A new commandment I give you. What's it going to be? Jesus, the Messiah, is giving us a new commandment. Love one another. Jesus is talking about love. We, were, we do Q&Rs around here. We call them Q&Rs now, not Q&As. But where me, I'll sit up there with another elder usually, and we'll take any question, text in, and I'll try to answer it and give you a response. And one time a, a while ago, somebody asked, like, what does it mean to embody the way of Jesus? And they put in parentheses in that question, and please don't say just love. <laughs> I don't know who it was, but that was, I felt very complimented. See, because if we're talking like Jesus, we're going to be talking about love. If we're living like Jesus, we're going to embody a life of love. There's just no two ways about it. Jesus was very redundant and repetitive. He was like a broken record. I know most of us, except for the hipsters, don't know what records are anymore, but <laughs> you say the same thing over and over and over and over again. And that was Jesus with this thing about love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Here's the interesting stuff. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you Again, that's kind of weird. You did not chose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit with that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. I'm going to say it again. And oh, by the way, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 
If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. This is weird. If I had done If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. This is going back to the prologue of John. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Thus saith the Lord. You're supposed to say, praise be to God. (laughs) So we're going to hit the the good stuff, the juicy punchline last. I want to get into a little bit, just kind of contextualize a little bit. Why is Jesus talking about this, you're no longer servants, but now you're my friends, and you're my friends if you obey my commands, and by the way, if people hated me, they're going to hate you too. If you're my friend now, that means you got a new set of enemies. What's going on here? Jesus is talking about these relational dynamics, servants, friends, and enemies, and what he's, the friendship and relationship, we, again, we are, we sit here 2,000 years after Jesus said this stuff, and we think that we're going to automatically, it's going to make perfect sense in our world. Relationships in the Roman Empire, in the ancient Near East, were different than we have today. Some scholars even say, like, a a love-based friendship was, was just not a thing in the ancient Near East, in the Roman Empire. Many scholars disagree with that, but they all agree it's just different. And see, relationships in the ancient Near East, in the Roman Empire, were hierarchical. Just relational situations and dynamics were mostly hierarchical. So that means that what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I'm elevating you guys. Now as Jesus is at the end of his life, he's elevating them. You used to be my servants. This is weird language, though. If I would stand up here and be like, I got good news for you guys. You have been my servants, but now you're my friends. This is great. Also, by the way, I've got a lot of enemies. So if you want to be in this church, if you want to f- be friends with me, you've got to hate the people who I hate, and you gotta, you're going to be hated by the people that hate me. It's just the fact of the matter. I hope we would have like two-thirds less people next week if I talked like that. It's a weird way of talking. But see, this is in the ancient Near East where Jesus is elevating his, his disciples. And then he says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. See, in the ancient Near Eastern Jewish world, people did choose their rabbis. It was just normal thing for a person to, if I want to walk, maybe I want to, to grow in authority. Maybe I want to, to be a leader in the synagogue. Maybe I want to be a leader in, in my faith tradition. You pick your rabbi, the one who resonates most with you. There were a number of famous, famous rabbis, influential still today, that were alive when Jesus was walking the earth. And they would pick their rabbi. But in this case, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. In this chosenness even, Jesus is speaking a little bit in some metaphoric ways because this chosenness is a motif or a theme that we see throughout the scriptures. Who did God choose in the Old Testament? It's not a trick question. 
Who did God chose, choose in the Old Testament? Abraham, the Israelite people, right? The Israelite people were God's chosen people, and that meant something beautiful and profound for them. They were God's chosen people. Now, they got a little bit too arrogant and egotistical, not realizing that they were a metaphor for the whole rest of the world, but they were God's chosen people. And now the disciples are like the people of Israel. I have chosen you. They are chosen ones. And now we get to this metaphorical thing that says, just as Israel was chosen, just as the disciples were the chosen ones, so you are chosen by Jesus. This is this really fun little metaphor that says, you, my friend, have been chosen by Jesus to be his own. You've been chosen by Jesus to be his own. You've been chosen by Jesus to be his own, and that means that the person next to you, who you might not know what they believe, you might not know how they vote, you might not know their sexual orientation. You might not know all sorts of things. They're chosen by Jesus without any conditions or asterisks. I've chosen you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. This is this, a theme that we need to pay attention to in this, in this text. Then Jesus kind of does this enemies thing and says, hey, by the way, just so you know, my enemies are now going to be your enemies. For one thing, this was an, a common thing in the in, in ancient Jewish world that if you become a friend with, with someone, you adopt their friends, like their friends are going to be yours, and also you adopt their enemies. Their enemies, are now, their enemies are now your enemies. Their friends are now your friends. Does that make sense? It's just a common thing. Also, Jesus, in the, it was common in farewell speeches within this ancient Jewish world to give a warning at the end of it. Warnings were very common. And this warning that Jesus gives, most scholars think, is kind of apocalyptic in nature. That means it's kind of this warning about the end is near, the end is, is coming, and you're going to be persecuted, and you're going to be, you're going to be, there's going to be trials and hardships and persecutions coming. It's kind of like the book of Revelation, this little warning here. And what this is pointing to, scholars say, now this is getting really geeky. Just stay, hang with me if you like the geeky stuff. If you don't, check Twitter or something for a minute and come back when we talk about love. But this is kind of apocalyptic in nature, Jesus' warning that they're going to endure hardship and persecution and the people who hated me are going to hate you. A lot, many scholars think this is Jesus talking about realized eschatology. This, this fancy term of realized eschatology, that means that John, the writer of the Gospel of John and Jesus seem to think that the end times, the end of all things, the eschatology, the, 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 the summation of all things, new creation has arrived in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That we don't have to wait for somewhere far away. That in Jesus, all things are coming into their fulfillment. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, new creation has now begun. And that means we can expect hardships. It's a realized end times. It's, it's happening right now before our eyes. We are living out new creation in the kingdom. But then, when we think about this, my enemies are going to be your enemies, you're going to be hated by the world. We Christians today, we kind of like this, this text, don't we? This is a fun one for us. 
because we, got, we like having a persecution complex. We like thinking about how we're going to be rejected by the world, right? And when we th- hear Jesus say this, you're going to be in the world and the world's going to reject you because they rejected me. They hated me, they're, so they're going to hate you. When we hear Jesus say this, who do we think about? All those dirty, rotten sinners out there, right? All those unchurched, non-Christians who are just burning up the world, heading to hell in a handbasket. Of course they're going to hate us because we follow Jesus. Now you could do that and say that and believe that if you just kind of jumped into this text without any context in the Gospel of John. But praise be to God, we have context. We've been going through the Gospel of of John for almost a year. So we know who Jesus' enemies were. Who, and please don't say the Jewish people, who were Jesus' enemies in the Gospel of John? You guys have been paying attention. See, the people who hated and rejected Jesus were not the Samaritans. We're not the Greek people. We're not the We're not the Roman heathen, the people who rejected Jesus, the people who hated Jesus, the people who wanted Jesus dead were the people of his own faith tradition. The religious leaders are the ones here who Jesus is warning his disciples about. He's telling them, just so you know, If you do choose to follow me, if you do choose to embody this way of love that I'm commanding right now, if you do choose to stay connected to me like a, a branch is connected to a tree trunk or a vine, your own religious people are going to reject you. If you do choose to follow me, your people, and this, we know this happened in the early church. The early church had to meet in homes because they were kicked out of this, the synagogues because they were rejected by their own religious tradition, by their own religious leaders, the ones that they respected, the ones that brought them up in the faith and taught them all the things and discipled them. They were rejected by those people because they followed Jesus. So if we're going to use this text to have something authoritative into our life, lives 2,000 years later, here's, here's the application, I think. Not that we're going to be, if we're following in the way of Jesus, if we're embodying this way of love, I think Jesus is saying it's not that you have to be worried about all those dirty, rotten sinners. If you're embodying the way of Jesus and really taking Jesus seriously and really embodying this way of love, you might just be rejected by the religious people that are closest to you. If you're embodying this way of Jesus and living out this scandalous way of love. See, there's a lot of religious people who even call themselves Christians who find Jesus and what he has to say offensive. They never say it, but when they see the way of Jesus embodied, they want nothing to do with it. If you follow Jesus, kind of count on being seen as the heretic, the weirdo, the one who's gone too far, the one who loves too much. See, because that sounds like Jesus. We could be done here, but there's more. Let's read again 
verses 13 through 17. Actually, 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. My command is this. This would be a good memory verse, literally. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay, than to lay down his life for one's friends. You are my friends, and if you do what I command, it's like you're friends of the king. Just Jesus reminding you, is not, you're not friends with Randy now. You're friends with Jesus Christ, the king. So you still need to do what I command, just so you know. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you do, ask in my name, and the father will give it to you. This is my command, love each other. So Jesus has been talking about fruit a lot in, these, in this text that we've been in the last three weeks. If you're going to be connected to me, it's just like you're a branch who's connected to a, an apple tree. An apple tree bears apples. If you're connected to me, you're going to bear my fruit. This is a really challenging teaching that, that too many of us just skip right over. If you're, if you're connected to me, here's the evidence that you're connected to me. Here's the fruit. You're going to bear my fruit. You're going to naturally bear the fruit of the kingdom. You're going to be a person who loves the people around them in scandalous, radical ways. That's the fruit of the kingdom. So what Jesus is saying here, he's giving us all this little self-examination test here. So this is what we do. We always put, whenever there's a challenging teaching, we always think about who needs to hear it besides us, right? <laughs> this is for you now. Jesus is saying, here's a good test for you. Is the, what's the fruit of your life? What, do, what, would, what would your coworker say who you're not really close with, but he watches or she watches you and just has an understanding of who you are? What would they say about your life? Your neighbor, not the one that you hang out with all the time, but the other one or the other ones, what would they say about who you are? What's the fruit of your life? See, because Jesus seems to think that if you follow Jesus, if you follow me, Jesus says, you're going to be known for the way you love people. And that just ups the ante so hard, doesn't it? See, Jesus, both the love is both the fruit of Jesus, being connected to Jesus and it's Jesus' command. They're one and the same. And what Jesus is saying is if you're connected to me, you are going to be a loving person. You're going to be loving one another. And if you're a church family, a faith community that is connected to Jesus, you are going to have a faith community that loves each other well. This is challenging stuff. See, because I think... Some of you are, might be church shopping. Some of you might be here and you're checking things out. Maybe you're here for the first time or maybe you're online. Are we doing online this morning? Did it work out? Oh, great. Great job, guys. Checking things out. And what do we do? What, what are the, some of the things that we do when we check a church out, trying to figure out if this is the right church for us? What are the, some of the things we do? 
listen to the preacher. Do I like the preacher? It's got to be a good sermon. No pressure, preacher. What else do we do? Music. The music's got to be popping. It's, it's got to move me emotionally. No pressure, musicians. Singers. What, what, what else do we look for in the church? What kind of coffee? All right. We have Stone Creek, my friend. What kind of coffee? What else? Let's say that again, Janan. Do they share my beliefs? That's something a lot of people do first. Go to the statement of faith that the church has. Oh, they don't have a statement of faith? That says something. Right. Well, yes. So here's, here's the thing. I think we could fill in a lot of... If we, if we said, what do churches, Christian churches in 2023 America value most or say is the most important thing? I think we would say things like, we would expect Jesus to say, my command is this, have the right beliefs. Right? Somebody's not happy right now. My command is this, if we looked at the church in 2023, America, my command is this, vote Democrat. My command is this, vote Republican. My command is this. Win debates about evolution and creation. My command is this. Have the right statement of faith. Did I say that already? My command is this. Say black lives matter. My command is this. Say all lives matter. My command is this. Be affirming of homosexuality. My command is this. Make sure you're non-affirming of homosexuality. My command is this. Condemn the woke mob. I could do this all day. Let's be honest about the church in America today, about us. There are all sorts of things we think are more important than loving one another, friends. But that is not a Christ-like teaching. That, you won't find that in the Gospels. See, Jesus said, my command is this, love one another. Do you know what that word love, we translate as love? It's called, in here, it's called agapao. How's that pronunciation, Zach? <laughs> no? Can you say it the right way? It's the verb. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jesus is the word, the Greek word that Jesus uses here. It's the verb form of agape. It's agapao. And the, the Greek word agape, the noun, or agapao, the verb, they both mean the same thing. And it's this rich, deep, scandalous, unconditional self-sacrificial love that God has towards humanity, friends. 
It's the deepest, richest kind of love you could, you could, you could imagine or muster. This word that the, the, the translators are using is this, this is my command to you. Have the love of Christ. Have the love that Jesus loves humanity with. That's how you're supposed to love one another. This is a challenging teaching, friends. See, because being dogmatic, do you know what dogmatic means? Dogmatic just means really focusing on the things that I believe in, being really rigid about it. That's easy. Putting right doctrine and right belief as the most important thing about when I'm going to find a church or what it means to be the church, believing the right, precise, exact things, that's easy. Cultivating a culture where we all vote a certain way and and engage culturally in a certain way, that's easy. That'll grow a church. That is currently growing churches by just taking a hard side politically. Getting really rigid about is this church non-affirming or affirming, that's easy. Getting really, really foaming at the mouth about whether women are preaching or engaged in leadership in the church and all these things, that's easy. Trying to think that we land in the right spot all the time about all the stuff, that is easy. But see, loving one another, that's some freaking hard work, friends. And Jesus says, if you want to know a church that looks like it's following me, Ask one question in one question alone. Do they love one another? So here's the thing. This is, we're gonna, I'm going to make it individual because we're Americans. And you can't have a loving church if you don't have loving people. So here's where we start. Is this the fruit of your life, friends? I think probably all of us can answer quickly, no. It's not the fruit of my life, man. This is why I stand up here and I pray and I feel this weight of preaching from the gospel and I feel this weight of being a pastor and I feel this weight of leading a church and I realize that I'm getting it wrong more often than not. Can anybody else identify with that? But see, I sometimes get what it means to get it right Wrong, too. You know what I mean? Like, I think I'm supposed to be this big, flashy preacher that if I'm doing my job well as a, as a pastor, I'm, I'm using the best sermon illustrations. I'm learning from Ian and all his, his kids' metaphors and familial metaphors, and I talk about sports a little bit more, and maybe, I, maybe I, everybody's coming because they're, they're obsessed with this preacher who's just laying it down. That's me getting it right. Or maybe, maybe I need to have... Have be on the cutting edge of what's, what's new and where the culture is going and situate us just right. There's all sorts of things that could mean I'm getting it right. I'm just taking this for myself. See what Jesus says. Are you loving people well? Are you loving the people in your church and not treating them like a bunch of dirt? Would your neighbor, Randy Nye, Pastor Randy, would your neighbors say that you are just a lot of things, but the thing that you are the most is just a loving person. Would your coworkers say that you're kind of a 
jerk of a boss or would they say, that's a loving person. They love me more than my, my job and my role. What is it for you? Is love the fruit of your life? That's the only question right here. And then we get to, we get to dream. What if, what if Bruce City Church was filled with a bunch of people, the regulars here, they, are, they take the command of Jesus seriously. When Jesus says love one another, they take it seriously. What if we could, I, this, is, this is like a high, this is a dream. I think it's Jesus' dream for Bruce City Church. Here's, here's a dream for Bruce City Church. What if we could be known in the, in the Milwaukee area? For like, the, those guys are kind of odd. See, there's a lot of people there who don't agree with each other about everything. There's a lot of people there who disagree about the scriptures and whether the scriptures are inerrant or not inerrant. There's a lot of people who disagree about woman in ministry. There's a lot of people there who seem to, I, I get different vibes and different things from different people at Bruce City Church because some people are affirming, some people are non-affirming. Some people, there's just all this different stuff. But you know what? You walk into that place and you're going to be loved. They don't seem to believe all the same things, but they sure do love each other well. And anybody who walks in receives that love. What if we could be that church, friends? Who isn't obsessed about believing the right things all the time, but who are obsessed with what Jesus was obsessed with, is saying, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. I don't think I've met a church that richly and beautifully, beautifully embodies this. And I don't think we do. But I think we can, friends. If we're continually reminding ourselves, Jesus' command isn't to vote right. Jesus' command isn't to be right. Jesus' command isn't to have the right doctrine. Jesus' command isn't to, to win the argument, to win the culture wars. Jesus' command is to love one another. That means put this person who is part of my church family ahead of myself and my preferences. That means I'm not going to leave a church if the pastor says something that's a little bit sideways. That means I'm, I'm not trying to manipulate you into staying. I'm just saying let's stay for the right reasons. This is Jesus' challenge to Bruce City Church this morning. In moving forward, here's the challenge from Jesus to us. Can we love one another and make that the most important thing about who we are? Let's stand and pray. Jesus, there's a reason, I think, that it feels almost non-Christian, the things that I'm saying. It feels unfamiliar in the church, the things that I'm saying. It, it grinds against our sensibilities because, see, we're told by people on social media or on the news or our talking head that we prefer, that we like, that here's the church. You, you need to run from your church if you hear Black Lives Matter. You need to run from your church if you hear All Lives Matter. You need to run from your church if they're affirming. You need to run from your church if they're not affirming. You need to run from the church if they're social justice minded. You need to run from the church if they're fill in the blank. 
we in the American church today have gotten this so wrong, Jesus, and gotten obsessed over the wrong things. I have gotten obsessed over the wrong things over and over again, and I just ask for your forgiveness, Jesus. I repent of being fooled by the world and the culture around me that all these things are the most important thing. Would you continue to convince me, Jesus, that you weren't lying when you said, my command is this, that you love each other as I have loved you, that this is what you care about the most. So your churches look more like the world around us than they, than, than they do look like you, Jesus, but I, what if we could be something different? What if we could embody this love? So I'm asking you, to orient us around one another, to actually change us, Jesus. Not to be consumers of a thing on Sunday mornings, but to, to be obsessed with and to come and walk in these doors looking to love. That our home churches wouldn't be these obligatory spaces or these friend groups that just like each other a lot, but that we would love each other richly and deeply. that we would be this weird group that prioritizing love, prioritizes loving each other over every single other thing. Jesus, come and help us look like you as individuals and as a, and as a church family. It's so simple, but it's the most difficult thing in the world. Come and reform our hearts.